Well, welcome to The Crossing on this Labor Day weekend, and hopefully you are taking a break from laboring this weekend and have a few days off and enjoying the weekend. But before we go on, I just want to look in the camera and give a big shout out to our Southeast campus, to all of our microsites, those who are watching online. Could we just give them a big hand? I'm so glad that you are part of The Crossing family with us. Well, next week we start a brand new series on the life of David called Flawed Hero. I don't know if there is another character in the Bible who relates to us more than David. While he's one of the greatest heroes of the Bible, he was not perfect. In fact, he's known as much for his epic failures as he is for his successes. And in spite of that, he is the only person that God calls a man after God's own heart. And I think there is so much for us to learn from his life. We've been planning this series for months and months. And I just think it's going to be a powerful series and moment for us. This is a great series for you to invite a friend to come with you to be a part of it and to see what God does in the midst of that. Well, when my kids were younger, we all went out shopping one day. And as we're out shopping, I look around and my youngest daughter, Taylor, was missing. Now, she was about six or seven years old at the time, and every parent has gone through this, and so you just begin to look around, and you just figure they just wandered off. Well, we could not find her. We're starting to look around, and we couldn't find her, and I'm trying to stay calm, but I was beginning to panic because in my mind, I'm just thinking she's been abducted. Something has happened to her. I think we're going to be one of those statistics. And so we are going up and down the aisle, and we are yelling her name. One of us went up front to just try to, to let them know what's going on. And for about 10 excruciating minutes, we could not find her. Well, finally, we located her. She was hiding in the middle of one of those clothing racks. She thought it would be really fun to hide in there from us. And I asked her, I mean, didn't you hear us calling your name? Like, yeah, but this was part of the whole game. And at that moment, I did not know whether to hug her or to kill her. <laughs> but here's what's true for all of us. That when you lose something of value, you will go to any length to find it. Well, today we are concluding our series that we've been calling Hills We Die On. These are these core convictions that we have as a church. It is these core convictions that we just believe for us as a church, this is what we're about. This is who we're going to be about. And this series, it's been based off of a scripture in Acts chapter 2. And I want you to notice three things about this early church. It's these three things that I've highlighted where it says this. It says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They, we've tried to pull back the curtain for you just to show how we think here at The Crossing, to show you our strategy of, of why we do and how we do what we do. And we have what we call our Great Commission engine here at The Crossing. Now, this right here, it's, it's based off of, of the Great Commission of Jesus. You know this, where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. 
That's the Great Commission. And so we begin to ask the question, how do we turbocharge that? How do we really see that begin to happen? And we begin to study this early church. And we notice these three environments that they had, these three things. The first was the temple courts, that these early Christians, they would meet together in the courtyard of the temple, They would come together by the thousands. They would meet in there, and they would worship together. They would pray together. They would teach God's word together. Well, that is exactly what we do in this setting right here. Well, there was a second environment. It was this missional outreach. It says that they sold their property and possessions to meet the needs of the people. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, it says that there was no needy person among them. See, this is why we do stuff around the world. This is why we do stuff in our community. It's it's because of this that we believe that we sync up to God's purposes, to the purposes of Jesus, and we serve people in the name of Jesus, that we become his hands and feet. And then it says that they went from house to house, that they would go to each other's houses and they would eat together because something powerful happens when you eat a meal together. And they would encourage one another. And that's our environment of small groups. It's getting together out of this large group and getting together in small groups where we can share life with one another. And it was in these environments that this early church changed the world. But for all of these, it's individually driven. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Is while we could set up all of these environments... We cannot force spiritual growth on you. You have to make the decision that you're going to take the steps to grow spiritually in your life. We can provide all of these, but all of this, it's individually driven on you. That we can't become this kind of church unless you're that kind of person. That's engaging, that's growing in your faith. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories back to back to back to illustrate how God feels about people. That we have these adjectives that we use to describe people. You know, we'll say things like this. You know, those are the rich people. Or those are the educated people. We get a sense if these are my people or not my people. There's the good people and bad people, Republican, Democrat, Independent. See, we all have adjectives that we use to describe people. But one of the things that was unique about Jesus is the way that he prioritized his adjectives, the way that he viewed people. Because for Jesus, there was just lost people and found people. There were those who were connected to God and those who were disconnected from God. And we see those two groups of people come around Jesus in this story in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. I, I love this word right here, that they muttered among themselves. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, there's two groups of people who are in the audience. One group, it's the tax collectors and sinners. These right here, these are the ones of questionable character. These are the people who have messy lives. 
They're irreligious, unbelieving. They are notorious sinners. They are the tax collector type of people. And then there's another group. It's the religious elite. They were called the Pharisees. There was nobody who was more religious than the Pharisees. And it was the teachers of the law. These are the ones who taught the Old Testament law in the synagogue and in the temple. It was these two groups. And because Jesus is the master teacher, Jesus is going to teach both groups at the same time. But it was this second group who were upset that Jesus would spend time with the people in the first group. They mutter, we can't believe he does this. We can't believe that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. See, eating is is very unique in every culture. Because in that culture, in the Middle Eastern culture of the first century, a rich person might feed a needy person, but he would never eat with them. Because to eat with them meant that you accepted them. And so this accusation that they make at Jesus is an accusation that I would love for people to make of me, that not only does Jesus welcome sinners, he accepts them. He accepts them for who they are. Well, in response to all of this, Jesus tells a story. It says, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Well, Jesus, when he would tell stories, he would always use stories that people could relate to. He would tell stories about a farmer who was sowing seed because they were used to seeing a farmer sow seed. He would tell stories about planting the smallest seed that grows to the biggest plant because people knew what that meant. He would talk about nets that were used for fishing because they were used to that. Well, this is a shepherding culture. They understand the whole concept of shepherding and sheep, that everybody knew this, everybody was around it, and everybody immediately knew the answer to this question. When Jesus says, doesn't he leave the 99 and go after the one? Everybody knows the answer to that. Well, in our culture, we think, why risk the 99 to go after the one? Because good business sense would say, you just write off the one as a business expense. But that's not how they thought. That everyone in the audience agrees. The tax collectors and the Pharisees both agree. This is the first time they've ever agreed about anything. That this is what you do. You leave the 99 and you go after the one. Let me show you a picture that I took when I was in Israel. Now, this is going to be kind of hard to see, but you can see these ridges right here, and you can see that there are some sheep here, and they would go from ridge to ridge, and they would walk along these ridges so they could go to try to find grass to eat. Not much has changed in shepherding in 2,000 years. But you can see in this next picture that this is, this is pretty common because the shepherds would lead them through the desert area so that they could find pasture to feed the sheep on. And you can see how harsh the terrain is. You can see how harsh it is that if somebody gets lost, that it is dangerous. If one of these sheep gets lost, it is dangerous to go after the one. Well, Jesus goes on and he says this. He says, When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. See, he's rejoicing because 
Perhaps he has risked his life to go find the sheep. Perhaps he didn't know whether he was actually going to find it or not. And so when he finally finds it, it's a big deal. See, when you find something valuable that's been lost, you feel better about it than before it was lost. I mean, isn't this true? If you lose something of value and you're looking for it, you feel better about it after it's been found. Because here's what we know. When we lose something of value, we focus on what is lost to the neglect of what is unlost. If your fiancé calls you and says that she's lost her engagement ring, but she says, don't worry, I still have my cell phone. I mean, that doesn't do much for you, does it? The fact that she didn't lose her cell phone is no comfort to you at all. Because when you lose something of value, the fact that you have a lot of unlost stuff does not matter. When I was a student ministry pastor, um, I took my high school students on a trip. And so we went on this trip and we were coming back. So on the way back, it was nighttime. We stopped at this rest stop so everybody could go to the bathroom and get a snack. And then when everybody was done, we loaded up in the vans and we got going. And when we were about an hour down the road, we discovered that we had left somebody at the rest stop. Now, before you judge me as a bad student ministry pastor... I thought that she was in the other van. They thought that she was in my van, but we left her behind. Now, I didn't say, well, you know, 29 out of 30 is a pretty good percentage. (laughs) I mean, this is an A if you're going to rank it. The fact that we had 29 unlost kids did not matter. My focus was on the one. And I became obsessed with finding this girl before she called her parents to tell them we had left her behind. When you lose something of value, our focus is on what is lost, even over all of the unlost things. Jesus concludes like this. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. See, Jesus, Jesus reveals the punchline that this is not a story about sheep. This is a story about people. And the Pharisees are thinking, what do you mean? Are you saying that God is more interested in him whom I wouldn't even let into my house than me who does everything right? Jesus would say, yes, yes. And what Jesus does is he describes us as sheep. And here's the thing about sheep is they are not very bright animals. Nate Johnson talked about this this summer in one of his messages on, on Psalm 23. If you didn't see it, you ought to go online and watch it. This is a great message. He told the story about what happened just a few months ago, the story of 1,500 sheep that followed each other over a cliff. And 400 of the sheep died. The other 1,100 did not die, I guess, because they had some padding when they came down. I I don't know. But you would think that one of them would pause for just a minute and say, you know, Eddie went over the cliff and he never came back. (laughs) Maybe I ought to reflect on that for just a moment before I keep on walking. 
But the sheep just says to himself, you know, I'm going to give it a try because it doesn't seem like a bad idea to me. <laughs> You're just encouraging me. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> See, sheep are not very bright animals. Look what it says in Isaiah. It says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. See, this is not too encouraging, but this is a pretty good description of who we are. Left to myself without a shepherd, I will go astray and turn my own way, and I have some stories to tell you about that, and you do too. Left on your own without a shepherd, you will go astray, and you will turn to things on your own, and there'll be a mess that is left behind. See, this was the problem with the religious leaders in Jesus' day, is that they thought that they were so much better than the others that they didn't realize how lost they really were. Here's this learning for us, is that when we lose something of great value, we go to great lengths to find it. When something that is lost is of great value to us, we will go to great lengths to find it. Now, this is not a story about sheep. Jesus tells a second story about losing money. And they did the same thing that we do. That If you go online to your bank account today and find out that $500 is missing, you are going to call and you're going to keep talking to somebody until they can help locate your $500 and where it is. See, Jesus is not telling a story about sheep and about money. He's telling a story about people. And remember, there are two groups who are listening to Jesus. There is one group who've been disconnected from God and they know it. And there's the other group who thought that they were so religious. They thought they had everything so together that they were disconnected from God and they didn't even know it. They were just as lost. See, the gravitational pull is towards the 99 and not towards the 1. And I'm not pointing fingers because the same thing happens to me. Before long when we see people, we see good people and bad people. We see conservative people and liberal people. Young people and old people, my people and not my people, my friends and those who used to be my friends. And before long, we start viewing people like everyone else. And you will be mean to people who do not agree with you. And you will say bad things about people who don't have the same views as you. And your Father in heaven says that when you have done that, you have joined the ranks of the Pharisees. You have joined the ranks of people who think that everyone should be just like you. And God says, my concern, my concern is the disconnected people, those who are lost. So when we lose something of great value, we will go to great lengths to find it, to find them. See, there's two dangers for us. There's two dangers that, that when we get into a setting like this and when we just live our life, there are these dangers that we can get stuck into. And here's this first danger, is if you don't remember how lost you once were, if you don't 
remember how lost you once were, then this won't make a difference. I was talking to, to a friend who was telling me about his past. He was just telling me just a couple weeks ago. And he, his eyes were welling up with tears out of gratitude for what God had forgiven him of. See, the longer that you're a Christian, the further away you get from your past and the more you begin to believe that you earned it, that you earned a seat at the table, that you deserve to be there. And I think Jesus would say, it's not that you have not been forgiven of much, it's you've forgotten of how much you've been forgiven. See, this first danger is if you don't remember how lost you once were, then here's the second danger. If you don't have any relationships with those who are far from God. See, if you don't have someone in your life that you love who is facing an eternity without Jesus, then this isn't going to make any difference. That you have to be intentional about this. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's a neighbor. See, here's the deal for me. I'm, I'm around Christians all the time. Everybody in my family are Christians. I work around Christians, which is a good news that your pastors are Christians. Yeah, I work around Christians. I go to church with a church full of Christians. And it would be easy for me to surround myself with only people who are found. So I have to be intentional. When my kids were younger, it, it was the parents of my kids' friends that were my connection that I could begin to pour into their lives. As my kids got older, I had to place myself in other environments. I've put myself in different environments at different seasons of my life. And I have a group of guys that I get together with on a regular basis that we'll go out to lunch or coffee for, and I pray for them all the time, and I hope that one day they will walk through the doors of this building and they will surrender their life to Jesus. But until that day, I'll keep praying. So here's my question. Who is your one? Who is your one? So you probably know who your 99 is. You probably have this, this group of Christians who are around you who are part of your 99. But who's your one? See, what's interesting about Jesus' story is a lost sheep, when a sheep would get lost, they would lie down and refuse to budge. And because of this, even when the shepherd finds them, they don't get up. And this is why many times you see in the pictures a shepherd carrying a sheep over his shoulders because he would have to carry it back to safety because they wouldn't go on their own. And many times through difficult terrain. See, the hard work isn't finding the sheep. The hard work is restoring the sheep. Listen, we don't find lost people who are all cleaned up. They've oftentimes been wounded by life and by circumstances. And the hard work, it's restoring them back to their Father in heaven. But listen, this is what someone once did for you. Who's your one? Who is your one? My challenge, you know, I, I've talked about since this church began, I've talked about having five people who are far from God that you're praying for on a regular basis. So let me just simplify it for you today. One. Have one person write their name down 
Put it on a post-it note. Stick it on your mirror. Put it in your car somewhere where that person won't see it. But you will pray for them every day. And if you don't have someone in your life, then you pray that God places someone in your life. Listen, you don't need to know the Bible to do this. This is where this stops so many of us because we're embarrassed. You know, we try to say something. We're like, well, when Shane said that the other day, it made sense. I know it doesn't make sense anymore. And so we just get embarrassed because we don't know more about the Bible. Or we get afraid to say something. Let me tell you how to do this, how to start a a spiritual conversation. You just tell your story. You just tell your story before Christ, what it was like before Christ, and then what your life was like after Jesus after you've surrendered your life to Jesus, that's all you have to tell them. Just the difference that he's made in your life. And then just invite them to come to church with you. Let me tell you one of the very first prayers that we ever prayed in this room. It was for my friend Kate. Kate and I were in a business leaders gathering that met for six years. And part of Kate's story is Kate went to college to be a CPA. And the college that she went to, they had a whole whole cohort of students that they worked together. There was 12 of them in this cohort that they worked their way through school. And then they graduated together. They were in each other's weddings. They celebrated birthdays together. They just did life together. Well, a bunch of them went out to New York on internships. And on 9-11... Nine of her friends were killed in the World Trade Center. Nine out of the 12. Well, Kate, she walked away from God. And for years when September 11th would come, she wouldn't get out of bed for for weeks. It'd be two, three, four weeks. Sometimes she would just stay in bed. But as we started meeting together, I began to see her start taking steps back to God. When we were building this building right here, we hosted this business leaders group on our campus on September 11th. And she came to me in the morning and she said, Shane, at the end of the day, would you pray for me? You can't imagine what a monumental thing it was for her just to ask that. I'm like, absolutely, Kate, I would love to. So we met all day, and at the end of the day, I wanted to give everybody a tour of our campus. And so I was touring our campus, and at the end, we were standing just right here in the middle. It was open air because we didn't have the roof on yet, just the middle of this construction of this building. And everybody started to leave, and one of my buddies who was a Christian, he said, I thought we were going to pray for Kate. And I said, oh, I thought that was a private thing. And Kate says, well, I'm okay with anybody who wants to pray. Well, at this point, nobody knew what to do. It was like I had a whole group, 15 people, you know, deer, cotton, headlights. They didn't know what to do. And I said, hey, if you're uncomfortable praying, just go ahead and leave. Whoever stays behind will pray for Kate. Well, nobody left. I didn't know if they just felt too awkward to leave, but nobody left. I'm like, okay, if you're here, we're going to gather around Kate, and we're going to place a hand on Kate. We're going to pray for her. And so it was, a, it was a scene I will never forget for the rest of my life. Right here in the middle of this room, we had Christians and non-Christians, and we prayed for Kate. Today, Kate is in church at Canyon Ridge Christian Church. She lives on that side of town, and God is a significant part of her life again. She finally surrendered back to him. So my question for you, who's your Kate? Who is your Kate? Who is your one? Who is your one? 
See, as a church, let's continue to assume that there are guests in our room. Let's continue to respect those with views and values that are different than our views and values. Let's continue to give permission to people to explore faith before they actually believe. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I become all things to all people so by all possible means we might save some. I want to talk to another group. This is the group where maybe you would describe yourself as that one. Maybe you felt lost and disconnected from God for a long time. And you've been coming here wondering if God could accept somebody like you. Let me assure you, God has never stopped searching for you. See, you don't get your life You don't come because you finally get your life all together and now you're worthy of coming. That's not what we do. God came seeking for you. He is the shepherd who loves his sheep and he will go to any length to search for you and to bring you home. See, that's the God that we serve. You see, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good and good people better. Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. That was his mission statement. That he came to seek and save those who are lost. And today, you can finally be found. See, this is why baptism is so powerful. Because baptism represents the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Represents the death of Jesus that when you're baptized, you are dying to your old self, that your old ways, they're gone. The Apostle Paul says that when we're baptized, we wash away our sins, that all of that past, it is gone. And then when we come up out of the water, that represents the resurrection of Jesus, that we come up out of the water to live a brand new life. See, that's the power of the Christian life. Listen, if you are that one, and maybe you're just wondering, is God searching for me? And maybe you've just been hesitant all this time. You will never know what your life could have been until you hand it over to the one who created it in the first place and has been on a relentless pursuit of you. So here's what I want to do. I want us to pray together. And I just want you just to bow your heads with me and maybe you're at the place of just saying, I'm ready to surrender my life to Jesus. See, it's this first step. It's just you just praying a prayer to to God, just saying, God, I am surrendering my life to Jesus. I'm accepting Jesus as my personal Lord and my personal Savior God, would you forgive me my sins? Help me to start a brand new life. There's others in here that 
you would describe yourself as someone who has been found. But you have somebody you need to be praying for. Somebody who is far from God. And right now, maybe saying, mentioning their name to God. That God would open up the doors. God, we come here today and we thank you that everybody in this room, every person was lost at one point. And we are found because of what Jesus has done for us. So God, we give you our lives. For those who are taking their first steps to Jesus today, God, I pray that you would meet them right where they are. God, for for those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time, would you give us a heart for the one? Would you give us a heart for those who are facing an eternity without Jesus? God, give us a heart for those who Jesus can change their life. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.